Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness he humbled himself and carried the cross love so amazing love so amazing jesus messiah Blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, the rescue for sinners, the ransom from heaven, Jesus Messiah, Lord. body the bread his blood the wine broken and poured out awful love the whole trembled and the veil was torn love so amazing love so amazing Jesus, 
OVBC family and friends, and thank you for joining us today as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke. The title of today's message is Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man, and our passage is found in Luke chapter 3, 21 through 38. So I'm going to invite you to join with me there and take your Bibles and get there. Luke chapter 3, and we're going to start at verse 21 here in a moment. In last week's passage, Luke points out John the Baptist's humility, the Messiah's purpose, and the depravity of King Herod. All of this was intended to build up the suspense and direct our focus on the upcoming introduction of Jesus as the Messiah. And this passage served to give John's testimony on the personal work of the anticipated Messiah's appearance. Now, as we come to today's passage, Luke recounts an even greater testimony to the superiority of Jesus' identity and ministry as the Trinity attests that Jesus is the very Son of God through Jesus' baptism and lineage. So with that, let's take a look at Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when John also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. And I pray as we open up the Bible that you keep us from many of the distractions, especially as we're at home and and we're on Facebook or YouTube and there's so many other things that could compete for our attention. Lord, I pray that you just clear those distractions. Let us open up our Bibles. Let us prepare to listen to your word and then to respond to the Holy Spirit's work. Lord, above all, that you would be glorified. We thank you for this uh, Luke, for his gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, Luke has given his readers some more proof that's going to lead them to have confidence that Jesus is Messiah, the Son of the living God, as he describes the events of Jesus' baptism. Now, the way Luke writes it, can I make it seem that Jesus was the last of those who were baptized by John, though we find in John chapter 3 that's not the case. John and Jesus did baptize. There was some overlap of their ministry. But more likely, Luke is writing in such a way to refer to a group that either came to be baptized that day, or it's a narrative device to show that now that Jesus has arrived, John's baptism is no longer needed. The preparer's task is now completed, so to speak. And now he moves to the background as Jesus is about to take front and center in Luke's gospel. In either case, we read that Jesus takes the trip to to the Jordan area uh, to be baptized of John. Of course, the question arises of why in the world would Jesus need to be baptized? What does Jesus need to be repented of? And I think that's a good question, and I believe it deserves an answer, and we'd like to tackle that this morning. Theologian Walter Leafield, in his commentary on Luke, writes that Jesus was baptized not because he was a sinner in need of repentance, but as a way of identifying himself with those he came to save. Now, this is a theme with Jesus uh, as he spent the majority of his time and energy and ministry with those who truly desired and needed him. He ate with sinners, tax collectors, 
and the outcast of society. Jesus went where he was needed and ministered to those who sought healing, forgiveness, and grace. And in reading the other gospel accounts of his baptism, I believe we can see two other reasons why Jesus came to be baptized. The first one we're going to find in Matthew chapter 3, 13 through 15, and that was to fulfill the law. Jesus was baptized in order to fulfill the law. Matthew writes, Then Jesus came from Galilee to, to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is, fulfilling, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This was something that God was required of Christ. But also, not only to fulfill the law, but also to reveal himself. John tells us in his gospel in the first chapter, that the next day that John the Baptist saw Jesus coming forward, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he, John writes, or says, of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. <clears throat> I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, and here's the key, that he might be revealed to Israel. Now it's fitting that John and Jesus would connect at this point, as it also serves as the passing of the baton. In Luke's gospel, John is no longer seen and is only mentioned two other times in passing. Not that he has become insignificant, but that he truly lives out his own decree when he wrote, I must decrease that he may decrease, or that he may increase. After his baptism, we find Jesus praying, which is a big theme in Luke's gospel. Luke, Luke records Jesus praying quite a bit in his record of Jesus' life here on earth. And though Luke doesn't give us an exact time reference of when he was praying, was Jesus still in the water, or was this after he had left after the baptism, we read that a supernatural event occurs that confirms that Jesus is the long-anticipated Messiah, as well as the very Son of God. Luke writes that the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. We're not told if everyone around Jesus witnessed that event, though the Apostle John does write in his gospel that John the Baptist did witness that. We see that in John chapter 1, verse 32. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, speaking of Jesus. John goes on to write, I say, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain... This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. The fact that Luke writes that it descended on Jesus in bodily form leads me to believe that those there may have also witnessed this event. In any case, this was another supernatural witness added to Luke's narrative to give certainty to his readers that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God from Gabriel to the host of angels to Elizabeth, Simeon, and Anna that we've read earlier in the first two chapters of Luke's gospel. Now, the other notable observation <clears throat> is that this voice came from heaven. This is a reference to God the Father. The Trinity is in focus and in action in confirming the identity of Jesus. One pastor writes that in this scene that the fullness of God in all three persons of the Trinity unites in revealing Jesus Christ as God's Son and Israel's Savior. 
In this passage, we see the Trinity in action as the redemption, redemption chapter of the biblical story continues. The Son humbly obeys, the Father approvingly speaks, and the Holy Spirit gently descends. The words of the Father are very simple and to the point, as he says, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. See, God the Father is expressing his pleasure in the obedience of the Son to the Father's plan to redeem his children from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. The Son's obedience is found in Philippians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul writes that Jesus, though he was God, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, in that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. After conveying this wonderful and supernatural event, Luke then moves to give the lineage of Jesus in verse 23. Look at that verse with me. In verse 23, Jesus, when he began, Luke writes, was about 30 years of age, bringing or being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now, Luke tells us that Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30 years of age. We're not told why Jesus waited that long to begin his ministry, uh, so there's no sense in trying to figure it out, though that was the age that a priest would begin his service in the temple. Now, I'm going to spare you the, uh, the folly of listening to me trying to pronounce and stumble all over the names correctly, but I would like to point out several observations about the list. First, Luke points out that the people supposed that Jesus was the son of Joseph. And that's not surprising. I am sure the story of his birth and miraculous events surrounding it had spread around Bethlehem. However, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, some ways from Bethlehem. We are not told whether Mary told others about all that had transpired, but it would seem that if they did, it would not have been readily accepted by many. Whatever may, whatever may be the case, as we will read later in Luke's Gospel, that those who were around Nazareth, the residents, those who grew up and knew Jesus, his family, and even their occupation, they would later be surprised to see that he had become a teacher with the power to do miracles. They surmised that Jesus was also the physical son of Joseph, just like the brothers of uh, his brothers, uh, James and Jude and his sisters. They all believed in the same thing. So, but as we go on here, we look at a casual reading of this genealogy will immediately reveal that there's a difference between the two genealogies that are found in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. See, Matthew opens up his Gospel with the genealogy while Luke waits to introduce the genealogy when he comes to introduce Christ's public ministry. Matthew starts with Abraham and then goes forward up to Jesus while Luke starts with Jesus and goes backwards and ends with Adam and then with God. Matthew focuses on the Jewish lineage of Jesus, while Luke focuses on Jesus as part of the human race. And then Matthew and Luke differ when we see the, the after King David. There have been many attempts to reconcile these differences. The most common are that Ma Matthew follows the line of Joseph, while Luke follows the line of Mary. Uh, Matthew follows the legal, the legal line of King David, while Luke follows the actual line. Or Luke includes a Levite marriage, which is where one brother is, would marry his brother's widow and bearing a child that would be under his brother's name. The consensus of most that I've seen is that Luke has found the line of Mary. That's uh, not everyone, but it's the main consistence. 
But instead of finding fault with Matthew or Luke's account or debating the fine points of Jewish genealogy records or believing that this proves that the Bible is unreliable, you and I should accept both accounts as part of the Holy Spirit's guidance. Remember, Luke is writing his gospel to give his readers certainty about the facts of Jesus' identity, ministry, and teaching. If this is the case, one might ask, what is the purpose of the genealogy anyway? How does this help give us the certainty about Jesus? Well, there's three main reasons. One is the genealogy, especially in the Jewish culture, was to prove your Jewish roots. And we know that that the Redeemer, the Savior, the Messiah, must come, must be a Jew. He must be from the children of Abraham, must be Hebrew. It also was to show those who could serve as a priest. What tribe? The priests were the tribes of Levi. And then also to show who was the son of David. In other words, who was a legal heir? Who could set on the throne and who could be king? In all of these, we see that Jesus satisfies uh, uh, two of the ones. He's not a Levite. He was not able to be a priest. But we do see that he is a Jewish roots and he is the son of David, a, a child of Judah. Uh, the second observation is that this list contains six men that make up what you and I call the hero of, hero of faith, the hall of fame in Hebrews chapter 11. And in that chapter, the writer of Hebrews recounts that those that live by faith, and in Jesus' lineage, we find Enoch, uh, the one who walked with God and then was not because God took him, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and King David. Now, that's a pretty good heritage. What is different about this genealogy compared to the many others found in the Bible is that Luke goes all the way to the beginning as we read that Jesus was the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, we're all sons of Adams. We are all created by God from the, uh, uh, from the dust of the earth. I should say we are all sons of Adam who was created by God from the dust of the earth and whose lungs received the very breath of God for, of, for life. What Luke is pointing out is that not only is Jesus the son of God, but he also is the son of man. He's part of the human race. Now, as we move on from the observations, I I want to take some time to consider how Luke gives us certainty about the identity of Jesus and the importance of his identity in this plan of redemption. You and I must remember that the Bible is one comprehensive story that is revealing the plan of God. You will recall that the story consists of four main themes. The creation where God creates all things that is good. And then we move to the fall where all things are, are, are corrupted by man's rebellion against sin. And then we see the promise of redemption, and that's the majority of Scripture as it leads to the redemption of how God is going to redeem man. And it ends with consummation or the recreation, how God restores all things. And I know this will either bring a smile to your face or a grimace to your face as I once again summarize this grand story with the tagline of nine words. The prince slays the dragon and wins the girl. In Luke's gospel, we are being introduced to the prince. This prince is the long-awaited Messiah. He's the anointed one of Yahweh. He's the king who will come to rule in righteousness, dispense justice, and usher in peace. Scripture is revealing to us here who this prince is and why he is able to defeat the dragon, the adversary of Yahweh, Satan, the deceiver, and the liar. By giving us Jesus' identity and background, we learn that Jesus is the only one who is worthy, ready, and capable of defeating this ancient foe and deliver Yahweh's children from the penalty, the power, 
in the presence of sin. To put it simply, we learn that Jesus as the Son of God and the Son of Man is able to provide what God requires. Let me say that again. What we learn here is that Jesus as the Son of God and the Son of Man is able to provide what God requires. So you may then ask, what does God require from us? That's a great question. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 48, that God requires perfection. Jesus taught his disciples, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Very quickly, even as I said those words, you and I should recognize that none of us is perfect. The Bible actually tells us that no one is good. We're all guilty of transgressing against Yahweh's moral laws and our actions and our attitudes and our nature. And this guilty charge carries the sentence of death and separation from God's mercy, grace, and love for eternity. Now, here's what I want us to understand. This is what I believe you and I need to capture as the spiritual truth of these two passages. As the Son of God, as being the Son of God, Scripture tells us that Jesus is loved by the Father. When he says, you are my beloved Son, this beloved is a word that describes the object of special affection and of a special relationship. The Bible reveals this in several passages. In Psalms 2, the Bible tells us that the Lord said to me, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. In Isaiah 42, 1, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Jesus is the object of Yahweh's love and his favor. God has given Jesus a special role and a place in his redemption plan. You may recall that in Luke chapter 1, verse 31 the angel told Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is the Son of God the one with whom the Father is well pleased. He is the object of his favor and his love. But also, Jesus is as the Son of Man. He takes human form. And as the second Adam, he stands in our place and he accomplishes what the first Adam could not do. Be perfect. Obey God perfectly. Arnold uh, Fruchtenbaum, and I might have gotten his name wrong. If so, I am sorry and I apologize. But writing in the Jews for Jesus blog, he notes this. As the seed of the woman, as we look at Genesis 3.15, the Messiah had to come out of humanity. That was the first gospel message, that from your seed, he will, you will bruise his, his head. As the seed of Abraham, remember that was the promise to Abraham in Genesis Uh, chapter 12. The Messiah had to come from the nation of Israel. And as the seed of Judah, he had to be of the tribe of Judah. And as the seed of David, he had to be of the family of David. And that's what the, the genealogy, the lineage of Jesus. He is the son of man, the son of Abraham, the son of Judah, the son of David. 
And as both the Son of God and the Son of Man, Jesus becomes the Redeemer, the Savior, the Deliverer, the one that you and I needed to escape the wrath of God and earn God's favor. You know, the New City Catechism explains this wonderful truth. And I, I'd like to read those to you. First, you'll see is question number 20. Who is the Redeemer? Who is the Messiah, the Savior? Well, the answer is the only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, in whom God became man and bore the penalty of sin for himself, or for sin himself. Question number 21 goes on to say, well, what sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? And now we see the importance of this passage today. The answer is one who is truly human and one who is truly God, which leads us to question 22. Well, why must the Redeemer be truly human? Well, that in human nature, the answer says, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and then suffer the punishment for human sin, and also that he might sympathize with our weakness, hence why he must be son of man and son of God. The question number 23 then answers the question, why must the Redeemer be truly God? Well, that's because of his divine nature. His obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective, and also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. So in this passage, it is given us confidence. It's bringing certainty to us that Jesus is able to provide what God requires by being both the Son of God and the Son of Man. Which brings us to our conclusion this morning. As you and I need to consider how to apply this wonderful truth that Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He's the prince who comes to defeat the dragon. Now, there are going to be many different ways to apply this passage uh, from whomever you're listening and how many are listening to me this morning. To some, it may give you more certainty that Jesus is loved by the Father. To some, it might be that, he get, that, that we understand, gives us strength and more confidence that Jesus is the Son of the living God, that he truly did take human form. To others, it demonstrates the Father's love towards us that he sent his Son to bear the wrath of his justice on our behalf. The one I would like to focus on this morning and for you to consider is that God the Father expresses his pleasure in us or to us due to the humble obedience of Jesus Christ. Let me say that once again. God the Father expresses his pleasure to us and in us due to the humble obedience of Jesus Christ. In other words, you and I receive the blessings of Christ. We too now are the object of God's pleasure and of God's love and mercy and favor. That ought to be something wonderful for us to contemplate this morning. Jesus, as the Son of God and the Son of Man, provided what you and I could not do. He bore the wrath of God and earned our favor. We could not do that on ourselves. In this, I now can rest knowing that my sins are forgiven, that my life now has purpose and meaning, that God subjugates all my suffering, all my fears, all my anxieties and pain for his good or for his glory and for my good. It also gives me certainty and confidence that my labor in the Lord 
is not in vain. And lastly, I'm able to rest and secure knowing that my inheritance and eternal home is secure. This is what this passage means to me. It's what you and I can rest on, can, can bank on. It's our guarantee. And I want to call you this morning to just to pause and to consider and then pray and respond to these wonderful truths. Let me ask you, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus died for our sins? Do you believe that Jesus' obedience has satisfied the wrath of God? Have you placed your truth or your life or your trust in this truth? I pray that you do so this morning. Are you certain that you are one of God's children? If not, would you make so today? Do so. Today is the day of salvation. Respond to the one who has provided that all that God has required. It's no longer about trying to be good and trying to do the right thing, trying to make yourself better. Rest in the works of Christ. Repent uh, from, our, from, from dead works, knowing that they do not make us good or pleasing to God. But just trust in the one who has done all that is needed. I'd like to end with these closing words. It's found in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. This is a picture of heaven. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Who's the one that is worthy? Who's the prince that slays the dragon? Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for Jesus who humbly obeys and provides all that you require. And I thank you so much, Lord, that, that through his work that your wrath was satisfied and now you look upon your children with favor. I pray that all who is listening to me this morning or whenever they may hear this message may come to know you as the son or as Jesus as the son of God and the son of man the true Savior, the Prince. And Father, I pray that you would just continue to be with us during this difficult time. We can't wait for you to bring us together again, that we may worship once again as one body, one community, submitting to the Lordship of Christ. Until then, keep us safe. And Lord, may we continue to glorify you in our lives. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.